Listen, when we pray, yours is the power. We are reminding ourselves and we are reminding God that to him alone belongs inherent power to do anything he chooses to do. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you live your life as one who gives all glory and honor to God? Or might you be more concerned with your own influence and reputation? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 16 of Lord, Teach Us to Pray. We've arrived at the end of the famous passage known as the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. Today, you'll be reminded that as a believer, you don't want to merely be a hearer of the Word, but rather someone who hears and does what the Word says to do. So examine your heart carefully, friend, and discern how to obey the Lord's commands as they relate to prayer, knowing with assurance you can always seek his help, saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's join Tom Pennington now, here on The Word Unleashed. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer provides us with three arguments for God to hear and to answer our prayers, and those arguments are based solely on things that belong to God. Let's look at those arguments together. Here's why God should hear and does hear and answer our prayers. First of all, Here's the first argument. God alone has the sovereign right to rule. God alone has the sovereign right to rule. For yours is the kingdom. To God and to God alone belongs the sovereign right to decide whatever happens. The word kingdom can refer to the sphere or the realm over which a king rules. We speak of the the kingdom of Jordan or, or the kingdom of Narnia. But here and in other places, the word kingdom doesn't refer to the realm or the sphere of a king's rule, but to the reality of his rule, to his kingship or his lordship. It refers to the authority or the right to rule. So yours is the kingdom then is a joyful affirmation of God's absolute sovereignty. Yours is the right to rule. This is a note that is sounded throughout the Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar, in those famous words at the end of Daniel 4, puts it this way. He says, God does according to his will in the host of heaven, that is, among the armies of heaven, and he does according to his will among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? A.W. Pink, commenting on the reality that God's sovereign rule cannot be threatened, writes this. Listen carefully to Pink. Were all the denizens of heaven and all the inhabitants of earth to combine in open revolt against him. Stop there and think for a moment. Pink is saying, 
if in a moment's time, all of the angels, Satan and his demons, and every human being on this planet, along with all who have ever lived or ever will live, if in one moment of time, they all combine together to rebel against God, listen to what Pink writes, it would cause God no uneasiness. It would have less effect upon his eternal, unassailable throne than the spray of the Mediterranean's waves has upon the towering rocks of Gibraltar. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, it is hard for us living in a republic to appreciate sovereignty. John Locke's idea that government is founded on a social contract gave birth to the American idea of the consent of the governed. In other words, we the people are the real rulers, and we agree to surrender some of our rights to the government in order to have certain benefits like law and order. That's why our founding documents speak of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that's wonderful for us and the freedoms we enjoy. But that's not what God's rule is like. He doesn't rule by the consent of the governed. As R.C. Sproul puts it, his reign extends over me whether I voted for him or not. He has absolute, unquestioned sovereignty over everything. Now, why would we say this at the end of a prayer? It's because there is a great encouragement to prayer in this expression. There is absolutely nothing in this universe that God doesn't have the complete and comprehensive right to rule. And that means that there is nothing that you can bring before God in prayer that isn't under his authority, under his right to rule, under his sovereignty, under his control. So there's nothing you can't ask him about because in the end, It's his. It belongs to him. He has control of it, and he can decide how it should work out. And so we come to God then saying, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the sovereign right to rule. So do what pleases you in regard to what I have asked. There's a second argument for God to answer our prayers in this conclusion. God alone has the unlimited power to act. God alone has the unlimited power to act. For yours is the power. To God and to God alone belongs the inherent power to do whatever he decides to do. Psalm 62, 11 says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard him say this, that power belongs to God. It's his. Power is solely God's possession. Stephen Charnock, who wrote the wonderful book on the existence and attributes of God, says this, as God's essence is immense, not to be confined in place, as it is eternal, not to be measured in time, so it is almighty, not to be limited in regard of action. Do you understand that God has the power to do everything that he determined to do? Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. When God decides to do something, 
There is nothing that can stand in his way of accomplishing it. But God not only has the power to do everything he's determined to do, God has the power to do everything. Jeremiah 32, verse 26. And you understand when I say he has the power to do everything, I mean within the boundaries of his own nature. God's not going to do something contrary to his nature. But if it fits his nature, he has the power to do all things. Jeremiah 32, 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, listen to this, saying, here's God talking. Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? You know, I feel sorry for those folks who who even profess to be Christians and they worry and struggle with some of the miracles in the Bible. You know, it's like, I don't know, six days and resurrection? Listen, if there is a God and if he's the God of all flesh, then there is nothing too difficult for him. You settle the issue of whether or not God exists and you've settled everything else. God has the power to do everything he determines to do. God has the power to do all things. Here's one. God has the power to do what he chooses not to do. I love what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. He says, don't, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these rocks, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God didn't choose to do that. But the point is, God can do even what he chooses not to do. If it's in keeping with his nature, God and God alone has the power to act. Do you understand that your power and my power, to whatever extent we have any, is derived from God? The fact that you can move your arm, that you can move your head, that you will get up and walk out of here at some point, that power is ultimately borrowed from God. Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, in God we live and move and have our being. Again, Pink writes, not a creature in the entire universe has an atom of power except what God delegates. But God's power is different. It is not acquired, nor does it depend upon any recognition by any other authority. It belongs to him inherently. To God belongs the power. You see, only God can cause his name to be hallowed. Only he can ensure that his kingdom comes and that his will is done. Only God can give us our daily bread, forgive our sins, protect us spiritually from harm, and cause us to grow in holiness. That's why we ask him. That's why we pray these things, because yours is the power and not mine. Sometimes we ask God for hard things, things that seem to us to be almost impossible to be accomplished. Things like the salvation of someone that we know and love, but who seems cold and hard-hearted and rebellious. The provision of a job in, in terrible financial times. The provision for a spouse when it doesn't seem likely, or, or the strength to overcome a habit or a temptation. We pray those things, but frankly, sometimes it seems like they're, they're impossible. Understand this. There is no limit to God's power. He can do everything he decides to do. Sometimes it's hard for us to see how God can cause his name to be honored in certain situations. It seems unlikely to us that in the lives of some people, his will will ever be done. Sometimes we find ourselves in desperate situations where we wonder if he can really meet our physical needs. 
Or perhaps we've sinned so horribly that we wonder if even God can forgive us. Or maybe we feel spiritually vulnerable, exposed, and weak, and we wonder if we'll ever really be able to stand, if we'll ever really be truly holy. Listen, when we pray, yours is the power, we are reminding ourselves and we are reminding God that to him alone belongs the inherent power to do anything he chooses to do. Is there anything, God says, too difficult for me? Yours is the power. The third argument for God's answering our prayers is that God alone is the ultimate reason to live. God alone is the ultimate reason to live, for yours is the glory. To God and to God alone belongs the sole reason to exist for everything that is. Romans chapter 11 verse verse 36 says, from him, that is God made or created all things, and through him, that is God sustains all things that he made, and to him, that is God is the end or the goal or the purpose for which all things exist, to him be the glory forever Amen. God's glory is the ultimate end of everything. The word glory refers to a couple of things in Scripture. It refers to the inherent internal weightiness or majesty or character of God. God is weighty. The word glory actually means heavy. God has a weighty character. He is inherently full of glory. But glory is also used to describe the honor and the praise that intelligent beings ascribe to God in light of who He is. This is what we mean when we speak of giving God glory or bringing glory to God or glorifying God. We're not adding something to God. We're simply acknowledging and extolling and praising what is already true about the weighty character of God. In this conclusion, we are acknowledging that only God deserves glory, that is to be praised and extolled. And we are asking God to answer our prayers, not for our sake, but for the sake of his own name and his own glory. If you've never read or you don't remember reading in recent times, Daniel chapter 9, I encourage you to read it at some point. It's a magnificent prayer of Daniel. But listen to how he ends it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. Now, why? On what basis is Daniel arguing for this? Here's why. Listen and take action. For because your own namesake, O my God, is on the line. Do it because of your glory for your own namesake. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. We ask God to answer our prayers for the sake of his own glory. And we ask God to answer our prayers in such a way that he alone receives the glory. When the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach completed each of his works, He took and wrote at the bottom of each page three initials, S, 
SDG. SDG stood for the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. It was a reminder to him and to us that we don't exist to promote our own glory, we exist to promote God's glory. And every time we pray these words, yours is the glory, this is what we're saying. Father, you alone deserve all the glory because you are glorious in your person. So however you may choose to answer my prayers, please answer them in such a way as to bring yourself the greatest possible glory. So we end where we began. We began with hallowed be your name and we end with to you alone, God, be the glory. Now notice verse 13 again. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God's kingdom, his rule, and his power, and his glory are not temporary. Literally, they are into the ages. God deserves to have these things that belong to him recognized and praised generation after generation and age after age into eternity. And then the prayer ends with a familiar word, Amen, or amen if you're more high church. I grew up in Southern Baptist churches where if the pastor said something you liked, you said amen. I never really understood why, and frankly, I don't think most of the men who said amen understood either. But amen is actually the Hebrew word amen. By the way, the word occurs in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It actually occurs more frequently in the New Testament than it does the Old It's a Hebrew word that's just brought over into Greek, and now we've brought it over into English. The word was primarily the congregation's affirmation that what had just been said was certain and true. So in Scripture, it often comes at the end of prayers. For example, 1 Chronicles 16.36, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. It expresses both affirmation, what he just prayed is true, or I want it to be true, let it be so, or it it expresses assurance. What he just prayed or what I have just prayed is possible because of the God we serve. God is able to do what I have just asked him to do. And so it's let it be so, and if God wills, it will be so. So when we or someone else reaches the end of their prayer, we follow both the Old Testament and the New Testament model in saying, amen. Let it be so. And if God wills it to be so, it will be so. Now I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles and chapter 29. Because here's where this conclusion that we've just studied together ultimately comes from. In 1 Chronicles 29, in response to David's request, the people brought their offerings for the construction of the temple. You remember that that David would not be allowed to construct, that Solomon would, but they brought their offerings while David was still living. And when the offerings had been collected, David didn't thank the people for their generosity. Instead, he thanks God. 1 Chronicles 29, look at verse 10. 
So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Now watch this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion or or the kingdom, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. That's the background for what we have just studied together. And when we finish our prayers with anything similar to what we have studied in the conclusion of Matthew 6, this is what we're expressing. To you and to you alone, O God, belongs the sovereign right to rule. To you and to you alone, O God, belongs the power to act, the unlimited power to do whatever you choose to do. And to you and to you alone, O God, belongs the reason that I and everything else exists. And what I'm asking from you now, ultimately I want you to do for your sake. Let me give you some very practical things I would urge you to do. We don't want to just be hearers of the Word. We want to be doers of the Word. So what can you do? Here's some practical suggestions. Number one, schedule deliberate times each day to pray. Let me just guarantee you something. If you don't schedule time to pray, you won't. Schedule deliberate times each day to pray. We began this series by looking at the fact that this was historically been true of both saints in the Scripture and saints throughout history. Maybe you follow John Calvin's suggestion in the Institutes, pray within an hour of waking. Pray when you begin your work day or your school day. Pray before each meal and then pray before bed. Whatever it is, Schedule deliberate time to pray. Number two, at least one of those times each day, follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, flowing through each of the six categories we've studied together. Our Lord said, pray then in this way. So we ought to practice praying in this way. I would encourage you to one time each day, flow through the Lord's Prayer, not just repeating the words, but rehearsing what you've learned from each of these petitions. Number three, Schedule at least once a week to pray with other Christians. Remember, this prayer is plural. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us. So I encourage you at least once a week to pray with other Christians. Maybe it's your roommate or your spouse or your family or your ministry partner, whatever. But schedule time at least once a week to pray with another Christian. Number four, commit to praying faithfully for the people in your family and in your church family. We're supposed to lift our eyes in prayer beyond ourselves. That's one of the great lessons of the Lord's Prayer, to God and to others. So pray for others. You can pick up one of the prayer request lists that are out there each week and pray through those needs. However you do it, commit to praying for others. Let me encourage you. Our Lord said, pray then in this way. So don't leave here today without having made some deliberate plans to incorporate what we study into your life this week and in coming weeks. Don't be merely a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, I would just remind us all that prayer is to the soul what breathing is to the body. We can't survive without it. And what I love about the study we've been able to go through together is that our Lord himself has taught us how to pray, how to frame our approach to God in a way that honors him. May God give us all the heart and resolve to pray to the God who hears. I love that description of God, the God who hears, the psalmist says. And when the righteous cry, the Lord hears. And so may we respond in faith to those promises using the very outline and model that our Lord himself gave us and that he himself followed in his prayers for himself and in the case of the prayer for sin for us. May we follow that model as well. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.